So MPs have headed home to their constituencies. Whitehall departments are winding down for the holidays and maybe for a few days we might not hear too much from the government. Christmas is here, the year is nearly at an end and I think we can all agree, gentlemen, that we need a rest. Certainly do. Always. It has been quite some year. Okay, so we've only had one Prime Minister and the Chancellor has lasted way longer than the 38 days in number 11 clocked up by his predecessor. But it has been a 12 months packed with political drama and intrigue, spectacular by-elections, the Covid inquiry, the Privileges Committee report into Boris Johnson, the coronation of a new monarch, war in the Middle East, an outbreak of civil war in the Conservative Party. Oh, and a fantastic new podcast was launched too. And today, for our final episode of the year, The Expert Factor is going to look back over the last year, the highs, the lows, the moments that matter and the questions that remain unanswered, at least until 2024 gets going. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Arlen Menon, Director of UK and the Changing Europe. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So, let's begin at the beginning of 2023. Cast your minds back to January. Paul, we saw Rishi Sunak... Right and early in the year, outline his five pledges, halving inflation, growing the economy, reducing the national debt, cutting NHS waiting lists and passing new laws to stop small boats. Paul, how has he done? I think um, Rishi's haven't gone terribly well. Yes, inflation has gone down, but absolutely nothing to do with the Prime Minister. What he was doing back in January was saying the Bank of England has said that inflation will easily more than half, so I'm going to pledge to more than half inflation. And it has come to pass, though it looked a bit hairy at some points over the summer. Growing the economy, he didn't put a timescale on it. The economy is pretty much stagnating. No growth at all in the third quarter of the year. It seems reducing the national debt, that's not going so well. The national debt is at record levels in recent times and not going down. NHS waiting lists are not coming down. In fact, they've gone up a lot over the year. And he's struggling still to pass his new laws to stop the small boats, causing considerable problems within his own party. Although I think he would point to the fact that the numbers of People coming over in small boats have gone down this year relative to last. He's set himself up for a fall on some of those, particularly the NHS waiting list. He's done something very easy uh, on the inflation side and the growing the economy and the reducing national debt. I think we have to wait for those. And Keir Starmer and set out five missions. Can you remember them all? No, but I'm the sort of person who walks to the shop and forgets what I've gone there for, so I wouldn't take that as a sign of anything. What I would say is the economic one, where he's promised higher sustained growth than in any of the G7 countries, stuck me as odd. Why would you set yourself a comparative yardstick for that, where what happens in the other countries is completely and utterly outside your own control? I think this is all part of Labour's attempt to look serious. That is to say, we're focused on the real issues that you care about. And at the moment, I think with the government in disarray, essentially Rishi Sunak and his team are doing Keir Starmer's job for him. He's not really been put to the test in the sense of his seriousness in any way, shape or form as yet. Politically speaking, in February, one of the biggest moments was probably the resignation of Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister and leader of the SNP, which I think certainly I didn't see coming. I don't know if either of you did. And did she leave in time? It's interesting. There were signs before she went, that the SNP were losing support. And crucially, and this is the crucial thing in Scotland, that there was a a separation of 
support for the SNP from support for independence? Because I mean, one of the things we've seen this year is support for independence has remained pretty stable. But whereas at the start of the year, I think over 90% of independence supporters said they'd vote SNP, that figure is now hovering in the low 60%. That was starting before she went. There's absolutely no doubt that her departure hastened that trend. And the SNP seemed to be in real trouble at the moment. Yeah, and that obviously matters in terms of a general election and Labour's prospects in Scotland. And reflects not just the problems that some of the scandal that seems to have surrounded the SNP, but and we're probably not going to get a chance to talk about this as a highlight of the rest of the year. But we've recently, for example, had the international comparison of educational performance, where yeah. England has actually been doing reasonably well and Scotland has been doing disastrously badly. And that has been under the watch of an SNP government. So I think this is probably the culmination of a series of things that come together after people have been in office for a very long time. Yeah, and without wanting to screw up your chronology, Hannah, just to say we did pretty well in England on the education schools and it seems to me that no one in government could actually find the time to go out and talk about this success because they were banging on about small boats, which struck me as <laughs> rather weird. In February, we also saw Rishi Sunak and Ursula von der Leyen announce the Windsor framework. Paul, was that... The high point of Sunak's premiership so far? So the high point of your year, Paul? Uh, absolutely, yes. And I just say that in case anyone has forgotten what the Windsor framework was, it was essentially ending the long-running dispute between the UK and the uh, EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. Rishi Sunak got left with a, a position on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was not sustainable because it really did create something close to a border in the RSC in a way that his predecessor said was not acceptable. And I think what we saw there was the consequence of a prime minister taking very seriously the detail of a good faith negotiation with the European Union and coming away with a pretty decent compromise in a world where you can't satisfy everybody because you've got a single market and you've got a land border with the Republic of Ireland and you've got the Northern Ireland wanting to be part of the United Kingdom. You can't square off every part of that. But it was a pretty decent deal, I think, given the very difficult constraints within which he was working. And I think that showed, frankly, the consequences of having a prime minister willing at that point to buckle down, do the hard yards and come to a reasonable compromise. So what is it going to turn out to be his high point as Prime Minister? I don't know, but I think it was the sort of thing, frankly, we ought to expect of a Prime Minister. The political things worth saying about it is firstly how small the rebellion in his own party was which was interesting given the the divisions in the Conservative Party over Brexit beforehand. But secondly, as you said, that the one part of this puzzle that wasn't squared was the DUP. So you have the continued standoff in Northern Ireland despite this, and that's something that's going to haunt us into next year when, of course, we have the consent vote. Indeed we do. And that is going to face whoever, we assume, wins the next election, unless it doesn't happen until January. Right then, March. This was a busy one. Paul, we had a budget. What was in it? I'm trying to... Cast my mind back. I think the <laughs> look, the big thing in the in the March budget, and I think the thing actually possibly the only thing domestically that this Prime Minister and Chancellor will be really remembered for on the public policy front was a big expansion of childcare, or at least the announcement of a big expansion of childcare. Pretty much yeah. announcement, pretty much of a doubling of government spending on childcare, offering free provision to all under four-year-olds from, I think, nine months on, or maybe one year on, 20 hours a week for anyone where both parents are in in work. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a very substantial increase on the current offer. 
is, I think, designed to some extent to appeal to what you might think of as Middle Britain in some sense, those who are struggling, obviously only those with those aged children. I missed out on that by about 20 years, but there we go. My children, my my, my children, not me. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that in a sense is probably not the end point, but it's getting towards the end point of what's been a very long journey for the British state from 25 years ago, really not doing anything in the way of childcare provision through gradually building that up through the new Labour years, where actually we saw particular focus on the poorest children. And then since 2010, again, a gradual increase in in the face of austerity elsewhere, gradual increase in what we spend on childcare, but actually a move away from that focus on the poorest children towards a focus on support for working parents. I think if there's one thing that budget will be remembered for, it will be that childcare policy. There was also this thing called expensing for corporation tax. But we can come up to that when we look at November and the autumn statement, because that was extended in the autumn statement. And let's just focus on childcare for now for the March budget. Yeah, we'll get back to that. And Hannah, Boris Johnson made his first appearance before the committee investigating Partygate. That was a pretty big moment, wasn't it? Yeah. So this was the Privileges Committee inquiry looking into not whether anything had happened in Downing Street, the Partygate saga, but whether Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament about it. And that was a big moment. And I think there were televised hearings that went on for quite some time. And really, I was struck by the astonishment from colleagues overseas who said it is remarkable to see a former prime minister brought back in this way and held to account by a parliamentary committee with detailed questioning. Like it was a, I think it was a really positive moment for the parliamentary system that we have mechanisms which enable us to to hold ministers to account, anyone to account, for whether they are giving a truthful account to parliament, which is really fundamental to whether parliament works. If you can't rely on ministers and others to tell the truth in parliament, then what is parliament doing with its time when it's trying to conduct scrutiny? It might as well go home. (laughs) Albeit, we have to say, he was held to account slightly belatedly. He was belated. We got there in the end and... I think it was a striking verdict. It was very typical of his approach, the way he responded to the verdict. He chose to accuse the system of being unfair. But I think it was right that Parliament was able to undertake that investigation for itself and draw its own conclusions. Well, move on to um, April. And it says here the big moment in Westminster was the resignation of Dominic Raab. But perhaps that's saying more... Giving away that we've got a script. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, we're uh, mostly um, remembering all of this. But uh, I'm trying to remember who Dominic Raab was. But um, uh, (laughs) perhaps this tells you something about how things that look really big at the time, in retrospect, perhaps appear less big, except for those immediately involved. Hannah, perhaps you could remind us why he quit, but also perhaps who he was. So he was a Justice Secretary. He had held a range of other cabinet roles. And he quit as a result of a investigation which was undertaken by QC, who was asked to look into allegations that he had bullied civil servants. And it was a very loyally complicated report which was produced, but it concluded that he had. I think the thing that was most notable about this whole episode was the fact that Rishi Sunak's response to Rob's resignation letter, which he sent having received this notice of this, the findings of the report, 
made almost no mention of the reason why Rob had to resign. We saw Rishi Sunak come in at the start of his premiership, making a big statement about how he wanted to lead a government that was going to be accountable with integrity at the highest levels. And yet, when one of his cabinet ministers was found, not just in his justice secretary role, but in other previous roles, to have been a bully, Rishi Sunak accepted his resignation without remarking upon the fact that was why he'd had to go. Well, presumably that's partly because uh, it, he kind of knew that that was a problem when he appointed him. And, um, and, and I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that it's not just Dominic Raab who's left this year, but also Suella Braverman, someone mm-hmm. who I think Rishi Sunak will also have known was somewhat problematic because she'd been uh, already sacked once by Liz Truss. Yep. And last year, Gavin Williamson, who mm-hmm. again, I think people uh, were raising something of an eyebrow about his appointment, given some of the issues surrounding him. So uh, I suppose there is a sort of deeper question here is about why in the first place did, did Rishi Sunak stick with some potentially rather awkward ministers from the Johnson era, given, as Hannah said, that he's, he came in wanting to say that he was turning over a new leaf and leading a uh, a government of all the uh, proper and upstanding people. And yet he kept these people in place for whom at least there was a very strong suspicion that there were problems associated with them. I think the simple answer is that politics is a world of difficult and sometimes grubby compromises. And the fact of the matter is that Rishi Sunak is in charge of a party that is fundamentally divided and he needs to keep different factions happy. And that was clearly unambiguously the case with Suella Braverman, who, if you think back to the leadership election that Sunak won, her intervention was absolutely crucial, and it's hard to avoid the impression there was a deal done there. Party management takes precedence once you become prime minister over the aspirations you had when you were waiting to become prime minister, I think. Moving into May, and and one for the Brexit nerds, perhaps, but also (laughs) quite significant, the government removed the sunset clause from the retained EU law bill, i.e. its plan for thousands of EU-era laws to expire automatically at the end of the year. I think that was something that those of us who are paying attention thought was inevitable. Yep but it was significant when it happened. It was significant in at least two ways. I mean, politically, it was significant for the language that Kerry Badenoch used when justifying the decision. I think the phrase she used was, I'm a conservative, not an arsonist, recognising, if you like, that we have to be pragmatic about this and simply scrapping thousands of regulations overnight without wondering what the impact might be might not be the best way to manage a modern economy. It's, it's interesting also in that it's part of a broader picture. This is the year, I think, when that Brexiter notion of leaving the European Union being the prelude to a bonfire of the regulations finally died, that actually it is striking this year how little we've diverged from the European Union in regulatory terms, how We've been willing to compromise, whether it's the Windsor framework, whether it's a retained EU law bill, whether it's border checks, which we'll come on to later on, I imagine. This was the year, in a sense, when Brexit hit economic reality and the government plumbed for the latter. And Paul, some pay deals were signed off with the NHS also in May. What have you made this year of the government's handling of industrial action in the public sector? Well, there's been a lot of it, hasn't there, industrial um, action? And that is the problem when you get inflation, as we've uh, had throughout this year, and a lack of pay growth and indeed significant pay cuts for large groups in the public sector over the last 13 years or so. So industrial action was probably going to be quite hard to avoid unless you were going to really sign some quite big checks early on. We are now in a position where uh, the, the teachers have broadly settled, the nurses have broadly settled, some of the doctors 
have settled, but it's been mm-hmm. an awful lot of pain getting there. I'm not sure that some of the government's rhetoric has been terribly helpful on this. They claimed that pay deals could be inflationary, but given that they were following the private sector rather than leading the private yeah. sector, I don't think that was the case. But they are genuinely constrained, and we'll come on to this when we talk about November and the autumn statement. They're generally constrained by the state of the public finances. And of course, some of the rhetoric is part of the negotiation. So no doubt, I'm quite sure this could have been settled with somewhat less pain than we've seen. But it's worth remembering that when we've had public sector to pay disputes in the past, look back in the 1970s and the 1980s, actually, this is pretty tame by comparison with some of those. But it's just that we haven't had that kind of dispute for a very long time. Yeah, it seemed to me quite clear that both the politicians and the civil servants were struggling for institutional memory about how to deal with some of these strikes. And and we also, in May, a busy month, saw some significant local election results. Mm -hmm. In England, Labour did very well in the local elections held in May. And obviously, that set the tone for the rest of the year. Subsequent to May, we've seen by-election results in which Labour have done very well. It's been a story of Tory electoral woes this year very much. And of course, we also had local elections in Northern Ireland a couple of weeks later, which saw Sinn Féin becoming the biggest party in local government in Northern Ireland, which I think will prove to be quite significant going forward. And of course, we had the coronation of Charles III. We did indeed. Oh. We did a report on the monarchy, for which I'm still very unpopular in the office. I read it the other day. <laughs> June, and we had Boris Johnson's resignation honours. Hannah, do you recall those? I do recall those, Anna. <laughs> uh, not least because we made an argument at the IFG that we ought to do away with resignation honours, that it makes sense to have an honour system to reward people who are making a significant contribution in public life. But the resignation honours are almost always backward looking there to, to, to reward the cronies and the friends and the people, the party donors and those who have helped a particular prime minister. And in particular, I think it's inappropriate for them to be used to put people into our legislature to make appointments to the House of Lords. If you're rewarding someone for past loyalty rather than future potential to be a a legislator and to make a a contribution. And there were some particularly eyebrow-raising choices from from Boris Johnson in terms of people he put into the House of Lords, some of the youngest peers we've, we've ever seen, for example. Nothing wrong, obviously, with having younger legislators, but there was questions raised about experience and skills in particular that those individuals brought to the upper house. So I think, yeah, we heard Keir Starmer say that he would, if he became prime minister, not have resignation honours, looking even beyond having become prime minister to, <laughs> to the point at which he was like a cheap on. promise. It seems, <laughs> indeed it does, but it's still positive, I think, and it's something that we... I think we've yet to see Liz Truss's resignation on a Sunday. We have. That's next year, I think. And Boris Johnson, of course, stood down as an MP in June. But perhaps the big economic news of that month was the NHS workforce plan, Paul, on which I know you have some strong feelings. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, <laughs> yes, it was, it was huge. But I don't think anyone has quite realised quite how huge it was. This was a plan... 75 years late, but better late than never, uh, setting out how the NHS workforce ought to develop over the next 15 or 20 years. And this is the biggest employer in the UK by far. Mm -hmm. Um, It takes a long time to 
trained doctors and nurses. You'd think we had, we'd have a plan. We haven't until this year. And why do I say it's huge? Because, and we put out a report on this earlier in the year, if you take it seriously, it'll cost another 50 billion quid a year. That's 2% of national income just to implement uh, that NHS workforce plan over the next 15 years or so. That's just an indication of some of the challenges we are going to face over the next couple of decades as we inevitably spend more and more on healthcare. And this this plan, which would take us to a world in which almost one in 10 of the entire workforce is working in the NHS, is this really going to happen? I don't know, but the plan is there. Everyone signed up to it in principle. It is an indication of how much we will be spending on health and employing huge numbers of people in that sector, which at one level is, is understandable. We talked about this in a podcast a couple of weeks ago. We want to be ill. Uh, we want to be ill. We want to be well. We want a health service that, that keeps us alive. And these things, you know, the more of us are getting old, we're all getting older, but the population as a whole is getting older and these things are becoming more expensive. And June was, of course, also the month when the COVID inquiry began. And if you listen to last week's episode, you can hear our thoughts about that. We come on to July and back to the ballot boxes with some big by-elections, not least Uxbridge and South Ryslip, Boris Johnson's former seat, which the Conservatives actually managed to hold, although only with a majority of 495, much lower than they had. Of course, the Conservatives lost a couple of other big ones at the same time. ULES, apparently, was a big issue here. That's the ultra-low emission zone, stopping some older and diesel cars driving around the area. There was quite a lot of political reaction to that, including from the Labour Party, but also, it would seem, from some of the announcements later in the year from Rishi Sunak. But did the political class overreact to that? Did Labour overreact, Anand? I think to an extent, yes, and for several reasons. One, because when these schemes come in and people realise that actually the vast majority of the cars that we drive are fine and exempt, it doesn't it's not quite the shock that people anticipated it being. And secondly, I mean, the interesting thing about Rishi Sunak, I suppose, is, as I've banged on about before, there's a coalition of voters here, and not all of those voters are anti-climate measures. So it's a question for him of who he's targeting. Uh, personally, I think the whole debate about the Uxbridge and South Ryslip by-election was a little bit misleading. And one, one really interesting facet of it, I think, that is going to become more important in our politics going forward is the number of ethnic minority voters in that constituency and the number particularly of Indian voters who voted Conservative. And that's a growing trend that will become increasingly salient, I think, in future elections. That feels like one for another podcast entirely. But of course, that was the good news for the Conservatives. But there were two rather different by-elections, one in Selby and Ainsty, where Labour took a formerly safe Conservative seat with a swing of nearly 25%, the largest since 1945, and Somerton and Froome, where the Liberal Democrats overturned a Conservative majority of nearly 30%. How much we read into these kind of colossal swings against the Conservatives and one to Labour, one to the Lib Dems? Well, of course, as with any by-election results, everything and nothing, they were analysed in great depth at the time. The government, of course, reminded us that incumbent parties always struggle in by-elections and 
We saw another, as you said, successful campaign by the Liberal Democrats, which again showcased their strategy of focusing very much in on the local issues in the area where the by-election is taking place. And I think the word is that they're extrapolating from that successful strategy for their approach to the next election and trying to really focus in on the detail of the seats which they're targeting. I think the Conservatives, as I say, tried to say we've won the seat in London. There was every expectation they could have lost that. And so in some ways, it was seen as a relatively good outcome. On the other hand, the swing in Selby and Ainsley really had the Labour Party celebrating because that was the sort of swing that they know that they would need to see to have any sort of proper working majority at a general election. It, you know that they need at least 7% even to get a majority of any sort. There's a big mountain to climb for them and it was a very positive result. If your crumb of comfort is we didn't lose a very safe seat, then I suggest you're in electoral trouble. Yeah, and you said a swing of 7% would give Labour a majority. There was a swing of 23.7%. This was huge. It was, but Labour does need a huge swing to get a, a decent majority at the next election and that's the, the challenge that they're facing. The summer, of course, brought more Brexit news. Anand, checks on fresh food from the EU were delayed for the fifth time, I believe, amid concerns over red tape. What was going on there? As it says on the tin, we've been meaning to put our new border operating model into effect, which means checks on agricultural products coming from the EU at our border. We delayed them again. Two interesting things, I think, about this. Firstly, the government said one of the reasons we're doing this is because of the danger of food price inflation if we impose those checks, which is pretty close to an admission that if you impose the checks that Brexit implies, this might have a negative impact on our economy. The second is what happens going forward. We all know that one of the things that Keir Starmer's talked about is his desire to negotiate a deal on veterinary matters and SPS, sanitary and phytosanitary standards with the European Union. The problem is the EU has no interest in negotiating that until we put our checks into place. That's to say we have nothing to give them as yet. So we have to impose the controls before we can negotiate them away. And one of the interesting things next year will be A... You slightly lost me here, Alan. We have to impose something so that we can negotiate it away. In a sense... <laughs> The European Union has no incentive to sit at a negotiating table to discuss agricultural trade if we're, they're in a situation where they've imposed the checks on us, but we haven't imposed the checks ah. on them. So in a sense, we have to put those checks into place before we can sit down and have a negotiation with them. So for me, one of the interesting questions for next year is, A, whether the government goes ahead and puts them in place in January or whether they leave them for Keir Starmer to do, because the short-term impact of putting these controls in place is going to be a degree of inflation and potentially even shortages in the shops, which isn't going to be great for a new prime minister. In August, we saw, Paul, the cost of UK government borrowing rise to the highest level since the financial crisis. Can you explain what was going on there? As part of the general increase in interest rates, of course, the guilt rates on government debt around the world have gone up pretty much in lockstep with bank base rates, which, as we know, have increased time after time. And we haven't talked about the continued increase in the Bank of England base rate over this whole period right up to August when when that stopped. So the combination of those things meant that we're paying when we're selling our well, any new debt that we're selling at a pretty high interest rate relative to what we've had to in the past. The real problem for the government at the moment is that the effective interest rate they're paying on a lot of the outstanding debt is also 
gone up, partly because a lot of it was bought by the Bank of England under the quantitative easing programme. And that means that we effectively pay interest at the Bank of England base rate. So as the base rate goes up, we pay more interest on the debt. And a large chunk, about a quarter of our debt, is linked to inflation. So as inflation has been high, we spent more on that. So the consequence of all that is we're spending something like £100 billion this year on paying debt interest. And that's not coming down ever so fast over the next few years. One of the big facts of British political and fiscal life over the next few years is we're spending a huge amount on government debt on, on, on the interest payments. And so there's less over to spend on things that we want, like a decent health service or an educational service or what have you. And that's why we're paying a lot of tax for, to some extent, not very much return. And that really narrows the options for whoever takes over the government after the next election. Of course, for the history books, we should also note that it was in August that Nadine Dorries, Conservative MP, resigned her parliamentary seat only two months after originally saying that she would do so, accusing Prime Minister Rishi Sunak of abandoning the fundamental principles (laughs) of conservatism and arguing that history would not judge him kindly for failing to fulfil her expectation of a seat in the House of Lords. Moving on into September... And we saw the UK rejoining the EU's Horizon Scientific Research Programme. Is this a big deal, Paul? Up to a point. This is really us giving a bunch of money to uh, a research organisation in in Europe who then dole it out around Europe. So we ought to get back what we put in. Mm. Um, The advantage of it is that this uh, allows collaboration with some of the best scientists and social scientists across Europe. It's a better thing to be in the not from the point of view of British science, but it's not necessarily any more money. This is just a different way of doling it out, but doling it out in a way which is internationally coordinated. And it's worth reminding ourselves that Rishi Sunak gave an interview to The Sun in September in which he declared his ambition to stop road calming and safety schemes, including 20 mile an hour zones, and to put an end to what he called the war on motorists, of which more in a sec as we move towards the party conferences. As you say, Anand, with October came the party conferences and we got Rishi Sunak's big change speech and three not very joined up policy pledges or changes. He confirmed he would axe the West Midlands to Manchester portion of High Speed 2, legislate to ensure the age at which people can buy cigarettes and tobacco should rise by one year every year into the future so that eventually no one can buy them. And he was also going to overhaul the A-level systems, three Quite major policies, one of which was essentially undoing a big project of the government's own. I mean, at the high level, Hannah, what do you make of this pitch that he was trying to become the agent of change, the prime minister of change after 13 years of conservative government? You could see what he was trying to do, but quite frankly, the claim was met with widespread derision. And I think that the fact that it didn't fly has been fully demonstrated by the fact that The government's pretty much abandoned this as a framing of what it is it's trying to do. And then, of course, Rishi Sunak put the the final nail in the coffin of any idea that he was making a break from previous administrations by bringing David Cameron back into his government at the... Oh, you're looking forward to November. That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) There was quite a lot. There were quite a lot of uh, slightly knocked noises off from representatives of former conservative regimes after he put out this narrative saying everyone else had failed and he was going to be the change candidate. But as I say, David Cameron seems to have forgiven him for that and accepted a place back in the government. Do we we make anything of the style of government from this? Because one's impression is that the HS2 
policy and the money for Northern Rail and so on was cooked up very much inside number 10. And we very much got that impression about the limits on migration, that the numbers, the yeah. cutoff, the level at which your earnings have to be before you're allowed into the country. Has he become too centralised and too focused on details in number 10? I think there's no doubt from what you hear, he's a bit of a micromanager. There's no doubt either that number 10 takes the big policy decisions. Also, I would say number 10 doesn't seem to be very good at this because in the case of HS2, this, of course, leaked before the announcement was made. So everyone knew he was going to make it before he did. So both in terms of over-centralisation and in terms of news management, I would say that this wasn't an exercise in good governance necessarily. At least we remember what was in Rishi's speech. Hannah, can you remind us what was in Keir Starmer's conference speech? What I can remember is His father the... was a toolmaker. <laughs> he didn't, didn't major on that so much this time. But somebody did come onto the stage and sprinkle him with glitter, which was arguably the highlight of that speech. No, I think he it was felt to have done a pretty decent, solid job. There weren't a lot of new major policy announcements. Partly, I think we saw a bit more content from some of the other Labour cabinet ministers in their conference speeches than we had done in cabinet ministers' speeches at the Conservative party conference where sort of all the content was reserved for Rishi Sunak's speech. But no, I cannot tell you what was in it. Poor old Keir. We also got two more heavy Conservative by-election defeats in October, both to Labour in mid-Bedfordshire and in Tamworth with big swings. But perhaps most significantly for the world, at least, was Hamas launching those horrific attacks on Israel, the repercussions of which are being felt across the Middle East and the wider world. Just focusing, as we have been very parochially on this country, Anand, how big an issue is that for politics over here? In the immediate term, I think fears in the Labour Party that this would have an impact on Muslim voters voting Labour have proved to be largely unfounded. There's been a little bit of a drift, but insofar as we can see, for now at least, it hasn't made a big difference. But of course, all bets are off. If this conflict drags on, if it starts having an impact on oil prices, say, And of course, that has a far more generalised impact on the state of our economy and therefore on politics as well. So there's no doubt this is massively destabilising. It also, and the interesting thing is, in all the polling, what you see is that people feel very insecure. Now, on a number of fronts, whether it's economically, whether it's in terms of international instability. And this just adds to that sense that people feel things are quite precarious. And that has an impact on how they behave, how they vote and so on. It appears to be quite a generational difference in attitude here. My sense is that younger people are much more pro-Palestine and older people pro-Israel. Yeah, I think that's broadly true. And actually, one of the really interesting things that's happening in our politics now is this increasing age divide. The values divide between old and young has always been big historically, and it is very big now. But one of the things we're seeing that we haven't really seen before is this turning into age differentials in voting behaviour. I think there's a 40 percentage point gap now between Tory support amongst the eldest generation and the youngest generation, which is not something we've ever seen before. Moving I think we're impressed by that, that data point. Absolutely. I was basing this mostly on conversations with my children and their friends, all of whom seem to have a very black and white view about this on one side. But also the other thing that's really interesting is, and there's data on this, is that since the start of this century, there have been there's been a sort of steady increase in the number of values issues included in party manifestos. So actually, politics has become more about values. We know for a fact there's a big difference in values between the young and the old. So if politics becomes more about values, then you get this differential playing out in terms of voting intention. 
Moving into November, quite a busy month. We had the AI Safety Summit in Bletchley Park and then that incredible reshuffle with Suella Braverman sacked as Home Secretary and David Cameron appointed as Foreign Secretary. Paul, we also had the autumn statement. Give us a lowdown on that. This was, to some extent, a trap being set for the next government. There was not really any more money around, and yet the Chancellor found £10 billion to cut national insurance contributions, and he did that within the fiscal rules, which means that debt shouldn't be rising in the fifth year of his forecast period, essentially by pencilling in some incredibly tough spending numbers for the period after 2024. So the big thing in the autumn statement was this cut in national insurance contributions, but entirely based on this expectation that spending can be cut on everything basically other than the NHS and childcare and defence post-election. As we hinted as we've gone through the previous 10 months, a combination of high debt interest payments, slowing economy, creating a, a real squeeze for whoever comes into government next time. And of course, this 10 billion of national insurance cuts comes off the back of 50 billion worth of tax increases over the last few years, particularly as the income tax allowances and thresholds are being held in place. So this isn't going to change the fact that this will be the biggest tax-raising parliament in peacetime history. Are you seriously going to deprive of us your riff about full expensing that you promised us earlier on? Oh, I did promise you. <laughs> I did promise you full expensing as well. What full expensing is allowing um, companies to offset the whole of any investment in plant and machinery against their corporation tax bill upfront. So if you spend £100 million today, then you reduce your recorded profits by £100 million and pay less corporation tax. That's replacing a system where you could offset it very gradually over time. So this is something that's really quite expensive upfront, but actually doesn't cost an enormous amount, maybe a couple of billion pounds a year into the medium term. Back in the March budget, the Chancellor announced this will be in place for three years. In November, he announced it will be in place indefinitely. That's quite a statement in the short run because that really hits his fiscal rules for about £10 billion a year over this over this period. It's been very much welcomed by many companies, as you'd expect. It's a tax giveaway. Uh, it has some downsides as well. Actually, once you put this in place, you give a very big subsidy to companies that are paying for their investments by borrowing rather than by raising it through the equity markets. And you might worry a bit about government subsidising debt financing um, of investments. It's also only for very particular kinds of investments in plant and machinery and not for other kinds of investments. So this is by no means uh, the kind of perfect policy that some people have made it out to be, though on balance it's probably just about worthwhile. There we are. There's my riff. Thank you. I'm glad you got that off your chest. Ah, so am I. <laughs> and finally, hurrah, we get to December. Another time <laughs> that we're recording this, Rishi Sunak has just seen his controversial immigration bill limp through second reading. Hannah, was this a triumph for the Prime Minister? I think this was pain deferred rather than a triumph. I never thought it was likely that rebels would choose to vote down the bill entirely a second reading. They put down a marker that they, the right-wing party doesn't feel that the legislation goes far enough in trying to shut down possibilities for appeals against removals to Rwanda. 
but they are keeping their powder dry in terms of the amendments that they would like to see to the bill and plan to bring those forward at the committee stage and if we have it a report stage in the new year and that will be further pain for the Prime Minister at that point who's going to have to decide whether he shifts in their direction, tries to give some concessions, whether he can do that without losing some of the One Nation group who at that point might feel disinclined to to vote for the legislation. So he's got to get the bill through the Commons, then he's got to get it through the Lords, then there is still the potential for further court challenges and then and if only then he can get through all those steps he might see the prospect of some flights taking off. And then we'll see whether this policy actually has the effect that the government is hoping for. But insofar as we can predict anything, I presume, Paul, we can predict that immigration will continue to be a big issue next year and into the general election campaign. I presume so. And of course, there are two elements to this. There's the sort of illegal immigration that we've been talking about, which is relatively small in the overall immigration numbers. And it's worth saying that even in the government's wildest dreams, they're only going to get a few hundred of the tens of thousands of uh, illegal immigrants on these flights to Rwanda. And we have no idea, actually, whether this will actually disincentivize people from making the crossing. And I suspect until it gets to you know, a majority of the tens of thousands who come over, it, it, it may well not. So this is, it, it, to me, it's extraordinary that a government has bet so much on this particular policy. As far as the sort of standard migration is concerned, where we're looking at 700,000 or so net immigration over the last year, that's clearly hit the headlines. And again, the government is trying to get that down by some quite crude measures, big increase in the minimum earnings that you need to have before you can come in, some stringent, much more stringent rules on who can bring dependents, spouses and children with them if they have a job even in shortage sectors such as the care sector. And actually, if you go and marry a foreigner, you have to be earning a certain amount before you can bring them over, which I think is, um, we've we've seen from some comments that this is beginning to affect actual conservatives who are seeing the effect of their policies. But I think we have to recognise in all of this, there are trade-offs. If we want to be paying for care staff on the cheap, we're probably going to have to bring them in from abroad because you know, we're clearly not managing to recruit them from people in the UK there is uh, there is a cost to making some of these some of these decisions if you stop students coming over that's going to be a cost to the university sector for whom this is a big export market what i'm less confident about is that we'll get a rational debate in the election about the pros and cons of different immigration policies we've reached the end of the year and the podcast That's it for 2023 for The Expert Factor. Thank you all for listening and for becoming, I hope, our fans. Remember, tell your friends that they can find us at Acast, Spotify, iTunes and wherever they get their podcasts. Encourage them to subscribe and nudge them on their way to leaving us a lovely review full of festive cheer and good tidings. Just just like we're full of festive cheer. (laughs) (laughs) Cheer you like us. (laughs) Cheer us up. We'll be back in January for what could really be an even more eventful year in British politics. In fact, we're going to attempt to preview it all in our first show back in 2024. So have a great Christmas. Try to switch off for a few days, Paul. We'll see you in January. Bright-eyed, full of beans and braced for a big year ahead. Don't worry, the expert factor will have you covered. Until then, it's Merry Christmas from me. And it's Merry Christmas from me. And it's Merry Christmas from them. <laughs> <laughs>